all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 157 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Ken, no relation to Karen, Carpenter episode of the SLS cast because it turns out there's a gentleman by the name of Ken Carpenter and this guy held the US record in discus and won the NCAA national title back in 1936 with a toss of 157 feet that's right folks and with that little bit of Ken Carpenter knowledge for you. Again, not related to Karen Carpenter. Uh, this here is Matt. And coming to us all the way from California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Tim, 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 Tim. Man, you sound kind of disappointed with yourself. Are you about to lecture us about <laughs> yourself? or <laughs> No. I, I mean, I was hoping that we could have a, a an hour and a half long conversation about Karen Carpenter. Oh, well, as much as I would like to discuss drummers who went on to surpass the original band they were a part of, and we could lead off with Karen Carpenter and move into Don Henley and Phil Collins and all sorts of other other wonderful people. So were you a household that was really into the Carpenters? Mm, like, did your parents, like, mom you know... liked the Carpenters. I mean, I, uh, I don't think she was like super fan or anything, but yeah. Well, that's fascinating, <laughs> isn't it? Though <laughs> I am like so damn ready for our vacation. You have no idea. I just got back from vacation. Well, good for you. I'm just looking forward to a vacation. Oh, yes, ladies and gentlemen. If you can hear by the disappointment in Matt's voice about. You know, all the finals that he has coming up. You know that is the time of the year for Matthew where he is just angry. He is finals angry for the next couple weeks. For the next four episodes, you will well, have... No, no, just until, just until Thursday. Today's the 7th of December. It's, you know, Pearl Harbor Day, right? Um, and on the 10th... I will be free of all of my finals. In the meantime, I have four finals in the next three days. Oh, wow. What finals do you have uh, coming uh, up? I have... Middle Eastern Studies? Later, between... uh, I have later British Masterworks, and then I have Texas in the Southwest, then the Middle East to uh, 500 to 1700, and then finally the Bible as Literature. That is a very broad range of things to study for, so I do not envy you with that. But I'm sure, I am sure, Matthew, you will pull through and secure those A-pluses all across the board. Well, I'm confident at this point of three A's and a B, but we'll see how it goes. Which is fine. I mean, a lot of people aim for at least, you know, three B's and maybe a C. So I think you're above average in your goal shooting right there. <laughs> well, it's like they say, C's get degrees. And, of course, the old adage of, you know what they call the guy who scored the lowest on the bar exam, right? No. A lawyer. Oh. <laughs> so, anyway, how how was your week? 
My week was great. I went to New York City, got to see a little bit of Don Henley, not Don, but Don Henley, uh, John Fogarty action, pretty, pretty different that's music. that's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Credence, right? Don Henley? <laughs> but I got to see three uh, plays. We got to see Al Pacino in this new show by written by David Mamet, this new play by David Mamet called uh, China Doll. Uh, David Mamet, for all those out there who are not really familiar with him, more than likely you have seen Glengarry Glen Ross. And not only did he write the screenplay for that movie, he also wrote the play that the screenplay is based off of. And he was nominated for uh, the Tony and the, the Academy Award and all that stuff. So he's a big time writer. And, you know, a couple months ago, right when I decided to go uh, to New York, I thought, man, this would be such a cool show to go see. It's David Mamet and Al Pacino. It's going to be brilliant. And really the most positive thing I can say about this play is that it is the most Al Pacino-iest show I think that you will ever see. Like, it is as if Al Pacino became the caricature of Al Pacino. And that is what we got on stage. You know, it was a lot of him chewing on his tongue or his lip or something. It looks like he's constantly chewing gum and doing the, you know, you know, the, the you knows and the, well, what, come on. Yeah. And, and, and like, I, I couldn't tell if he was like forgetting his lines or if that was a part of the deal because there was a lot of like, you knows, you know, and a lot of taking his time saying one word, but it fluctuating from saying it loudly to quietly, you know. Up high, down low. Uh, so that was kind of a bust. I want to say it was a bust because it was Al freaking Pacino. So it's always fun to see an actor of that caliber live on stage. But we got to see Les Mis, the musical. It came back to Broadway. Alfie Bow, if any of you guys out there are into great singers, Alfie Bow is a really well-known. Well, I think he's super well-known, I guess. I knew him from watching the 25th anniversary concert of Les Mis. That was, I guess, two years ago or so. He performed in it, and I didn't really care about the concert overall, but man, him actually playing Jean Valjean on stage with the makeup, with the cast, with the orchestra, and and in that, you know, in that small theater there, it was just brilliant. And if any of you guys are in New York, you have to go check out uh, Les Mis with Alfie Bow. We did that as a matinee, and that night we were kind of riding on that high of seeing such a fantastic musical that we decided to keep it old school and go see The Phantom of the Opera, which it's kind of a staple. And we saw, I think I talked about it on the show before, we saw Phantom of the Opera when it rolled into L.A. earlier this year, and it was god-awful. The Phantom was very... Let's. I'll just say that The Phantom was... It seemed like he was more into... Raul or Raul or the man, the the other younger guy love interest who is not the Phantom. Seems like the Phantom was more in love with that guy than he was with Christine. He was very, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you guys get that picture a little bit. Yeah. So we got to do that. Did the whole museums. Did that. You know, the weather was beautiful. It's more Christmassy in New York than it is in L.A. Um, I just think maybe the Jews in L.A. are are just a little bit more bitchy about the Christmas spirit than the Jews in New York, who I think are a little bit more, you know, embracing the holiday cheer, I'll just say. Yeah, it was a fun and successful trip. It was fun. How was your past week? Um, Not anywhere near as exciting as yours, that's for sure. Just another week here at the old Quentin Homestead. So, yeah. All right, well... 
After that stirring uh, trip around the New York news, would you like to hear the what, what's happening in our email box? Email, emails are coming today. Yeah, all right, looks like we have uh, several responses here, actually just emails from uh, our friend That Fracking Cat, who is, of course, a co-host of both Midnight Movie Nights and We Are Not Here to Please You. So, uh, man, he's just appearing all over the place in all these different podcasts. Uh, let's see here. He sends us a, a, just a random email on Tuesday of last week saying, Howdy, guys. And then another one on Thursday last week of good morning, good sirs. So howdy, cat, and good evening here as we record. Uh, let's see here. And then he actually sends us one on Friday that said everybody's working for the weekend. That's right. Because everyone's watching to see what you will do. That's actually just what I'm saying. Uh, and he also even replied to that email that was from the future. And uh, that he had said, hey, how's it going? And I was like, hey, you know, greetings, friendly cat from the future. What did we get for Christmas? And he says, spoilers, a pair of blue socks and a harmonica. Didn't know you were a musician. That's pretty cool. So I am now looking forward to blue socks and a harmonica. Or maybe, Tim, you'll get the blue socks and I'll get the harmonica. Or maybe you get the harmonica. We already have harmonicas. We do both actually already have harmonicas, but oh, maybe man. I'll get a new one, or you'll get a new one. So, anyways, so that that was the email uh, that was in our email box. Of course, if you would like to send us an email, you can do so by sending an email to the show at slscast.com. So, and do send us emails that aren't that quite obscure. or even if they are obscure because apparently we're going to read them and then talk about them on the show uh let's see here (laughs) so without further ado i guess we can get to the news isn't that right sir let's do it please all right here we go folks it's the news So first up, I got a pair of stories about The Revenant, which is the upcoming Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hardy flick. Uh, let's see here. First one is from Variety.com, comes to us by way of Tim Gray. Says, Leonardo DiCaprio says The Revenant was his most difficult film. And when he says that, uh, he says, quote, it was the most difficult film I think that any of us have ever done. End quote. Um, there, this uh, comes. The, the the quote comes from a Monday night Q and A session uh, that followed the screening of the at the Academy Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills. So um, this is uh, this was a couple of weeks ago that this happened, but still, I thought this was kind of interesting. And this was also stuff I meant to get to last week, but we didn't have time for. Uh, let's see here. They also talk about uh, the director, which is Alejandro Gonzalez Enritu, uh, who pointed out that there were complicated single takes that lasted several minutes, and they were sometimes filming in 30 below temperatures, adding, quote, conditions were against us all the time, end quote. Um, 
they uh, apparently were doing things like scouting out stuff five years ago, making sure to get all the locations down because apparently a lot of the stuff that they do in the film has a lot of single shot stuff that is uh, done in that weather. So they literally had minimum, you know, minimal time frames of daylight to work with. So it's interesting stuff, um, which is. Of course, bleeding into this next piece here uh, from HollywoodReporter.com, and this is by way of Scott Feinberg, where it talks about Leonardo DiCaprio's The Revenant debuts, brutal, gory, Oscar-bound, question mark. Um, again, also from a couple weeks ago, because I wanted to get to this last week, it says here, there is one less award season mystery as The Revenant... Alejandro G. Inarritu's highly anticipated follow-up to Birdman, the film that brought him three Oscars at the most recent Academy Awards, finally was unveiled. The epic period drama, which stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy, screened for an audience of awards voters and tastemakers at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills. Yay! Uh, let's see here. Reviews, of course, are embargoed, uh, or were at least embargoed until the 4th, but I haven't actually checked anything on them yet because I've been, you know, waiting for the movie to come out. It says, but the film, which is about a fur trapper left nearly for dead after a couple of vicious attacks by both men and beast, who then embarks on a quest for both survival and revenge, is already provoking strong reactions. Many pro, but some con. Uh, it is long, running more than two and a half hours, gorgeous and gruesome. Several people walked out throughout the movie, apparently unable to take the gore. And while many critics are likely to love it, it is decidedly not everyone's cup of tea. Um, apparently, though, the key things that came out of this screening are two things. One, DiCaprio couldn't have done a better job and looks like the man to beat in the best actor race. Look at that. And also, two, Lubez, uh, Lubezki, and I am uh, summing up this article a little bit here, uh, is in all likelihood going to become the first lenser in history to win three consecutive Oscars. So, look out, folks. It's happening, and I am very excited. Now, the article does go on from there. It's also a little bit more meaty than what I have described. But I was curious there, Tim, what do you think? Uh, does this Are the reports that you're hearing and what Leonardo DiCaprio said about it being such a tough shoot, um, do you think this adds to the mystique of the movie, makes you want to see it more? Does it make the trailer make a little bit more sense? I don't know how much of the trailer you've seen, but... I've seen the trailer a few times. Just the trailer itself was enough to get a lot of people involved. Because um, I, I think my dad is a good gauge for, you know, like what movies will grab people's attention. We went to go see Mission Impossible uh, when I was in town last. And the tra the first, I, I guess it was the teaser trailer, uh, The Revenant came on. And, man, right when they had that shot of Leonardo DiCaprio, that one continuous shot of him galloping on his horse, and the camera swings around, and you see him pointing the gun, and he shoots an Indian, or Native American, I guess, off of a, off another horse as, like, gunshots are going off all around him. It's just a beautiful shot. I mean, just the scenery and the cinematography is absolutely brilliant. That's enough for uh, for me 
to be super excited. It was even more exciting for me to see my dad really get into it as well. Um, because I don't think he actually saw Birdman, so he's not really familiar with uh, the director's previous work. I'm obviously, you and I, Matt, are both familiar with Birdman, and I think this is even, you know, kind of adding fuel to the fire of really wanting to see it. So I'm just really glad that uh, that he's really dedicating himself to making quality, top-notch films and trying to tell it in a true and honest way, not for just the audience's sake, but for the art of movie making itself. Agreed, agreed. All right, well, that was my first set of set of news pieces, so go ahead, sir. What do you got for us? All right, I'm going to do three pieces of news real quick. Uh, one pertaining to the sequel to Train Spotting, Train Spotting 2, I think is what it's called as of now <laughs> but it is uh, confirmed for a 2017 release i'm getting this info from collider.com per variety uh, and it says that tristar pictures has secured worldwide rights to train spotting 2 with production slated to begin in the spring with the entire main cast returning and that includes ewan mcgregor johnny lee miller ewan brenner or bremner and Robert Carlyle, as well as director Danny Boyle, who's been spearheading this little reunion for the past few years. And, uh, and yeah, this is uh, based off the sequel to Train Spotting, Irvin Welsh's book Train Spotting. The book is entitled Porno. So, yeah, for all of you guys that are really excited to see a sequel to Train Spotting Part 2, or just a sequel to Train Spotting, um, you will just have to wait uh, about two more years. So. Good, 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 good news there. Um, next up, something that I just remembered that I wanted to talk about last week, but it's something I just really wanted to mention. Um, so MST3K, Mystery Science Theater 3000, launched their Kickstarter here about a, maybe it's been like three or four weeks ago. And they uh, their goal was to raise like two or three million dollars so they can produce, uh, I think like two or three episodes or so. And it has well surpassed the two or three million dollar mark. And so as they were getting all this, uh, as they were getting all the funding and all that stuff, they would slowly like, you know, reveal who's basically the new Joel, because obviously Joel uh, isn't wanting to, he doesn't want to come back and do the show again, because he always saw that, you know, every five, six, seven years or so, there would be a new person, a new guy or girl stuck up on that space station or on that spaceship. And uh, there's going to be two new mad scientists as well as two new voices for uh, Crow T Robot and, uh, oh shit, what's the other robot's name? I'm totally blanking on that right now. So you got Crow, Tom Servo. Tom Servo, yes. So uh, there's going to be a totally different cast for every single character. But it has been released. It has now come out here about a week or so ago that Patton Oswalt officially joins the MST3K reboot. And via the MST3K Kickstarter itself, Joel Hodginson said this, I first became aware of Patton around 14 years ago when he was doing commentary for the MTV Awards. Live in the room during the event, I realized right away he was a kindred spirit and damn funny too. Since then, obviously, he's bloomed into this amazing comedy internet dynamo, and I've got to tell you, I've seen a lot of stand-ups over the years, but no lie, Patton really is one of the best ever, and just as important, he's a very fun, articulate, and witty soul. 
just the kind of person who we've always tried to bring on board for MST3K, and I believe he will be playing one of the head scientists, the one of the one of the head uh, uh, evil mad scientists that is actually a descendant of one of the original mad scientists from the original show. So that is something that I'm super excited about because Patton Oswalt is a movie lover. He's written a book about uh, about the love of film, about his love of film, and he talks about movies a lot on various podcasts and uh, in his stand-up comedy routine. So that is something to really be excited about because uh, I know a lot of you out there are MST3K fans. So, yay! Um, and my third piece of news, really quick, pertains to Star Trek Into Darkness. And I'm getting this via Variety.com. David Limnoff, or Lin- Limnoff, <laughs> David Lindelof, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, Lindelof, 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 he was one of the spearheads of the first two Star Trek movies that were directed by J.J. Abrams, and now he's uh, doing that show, The Leftovers, which has been getting rave reviews. Well, he was interviewed about the this current season of The Leftovers, and during the interview, they were talking about keeping certain things a secret within a TV show, where he says something along the lines of this, pertaining to a plot device or a plot element in the show that a lot of people were wondering if they were trying to keep it under wraps or not. And this is, uh, I'm reading this from Variety.com. In response to that plot device or whatnot, Lindelof says, why would we hide that? We want you to know that this character has not exited the mortal realm. We know that you're a sophisticated audience. We're going to give you some hints, because why keep that a secret? There's no reason to be mysterious just for mysterious sake. That's the thing that I'm trying to learn, because it's completely and totally situational. When we did Star Trek Into Darkness, for example, we decided that we weren't going to tell people that Benedict Cumberbatch was going to play Khan. And that was a mistake, because the audience was like, we know he's playing Khan. That was why it was a mistake. But J.J. Abrams is telling us nothing about the new Star Wars movie, and we love it. I've not come across a single person who's like, I wish I knew a little bit more. We are like, thank God he's protecting us of all the things that will be revealed in the movie theater. End all quotes there. So I, I guess that's something good there. He feels bad about... Keeping Benedict Cumberbatch's con a secret. Matt, do you have any comments, questions, concerns over the train spotting cast returning for the sequel, Patton Oswalt being a part of Mystery Science Theater 3000 reboot, or David Lindloff on keeping con a secret? Uh, let's see. The train spotting thing, cool. Uh, Patton Oswalt, that's awesome. Definitely excited to hear that. And I think they fucked up the whole goddamn thing by making it Rathacon. I don't understand why you would work so fucking hard to create your own goddamn universe if the only thing you're going to fucking do as soon as you get your own goddamn universe is remake the second fucking movie. Anyway, all right, so my news is also J.J. Abrams related. Uh, Well, I mean, sideways, since that was obviously not key to J.J. Abrams per se. 
<laughs> but whatever. Uh, let's see here. From independent.co.uk by way of Andrew Griffin. Uh, Star Wars, The Force Awakens browser extension prevents spoilers, keeps users from reading about the film. It is a simple extension for Google Chrome that will allow for a Star Wars free life. Yes, that's right. Um, it's an extension for Google Chrome. However, you can still go and, uh, go to Google and pull up, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, all that good fun stuff and still choose your side. You can choose light side or dark side and everything that you have through Google is, um, made into that. So, uh, but with the Google extension, it's really nice because it looks through open pages for problem phrases. If it sees one, it lets you know, Hey, potential spoilers are here. So you can click to go ahead, proceed anyway, or what have you. So much like our spoiler free world that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Well, here you go. Looks like Google's trying to help out. However, I like using it. I chose dark side because is there any other side besides dark side? And, um, like my, uh, on, on maps, right? If you're using your GPS, you get a TIE fighter. And of course, if you're, you know, you, if you're into that sort of thing, you can have an X wing instead. Um, and then, and then like you, you're in YouTube, um, all of the, the volume slider bar and everything, it, it turns into a red lightsaber and you actually get the lightsaber sounds when you go to turn up and down the volume. So it's really cool stuff. Um, I was definitely, um, excited to hear about that. And if you, like me, do not want to be spoiled in any way, shape or form about Star Wars, well, then download Chrome and you can get the Chrome extension. Also from, uh, Star Wars related news. This is from Collider.com by way of Matt Goldberg. Will Star Wars The Force Awakens have an end credit scene? J.J. Abrams revealed that while other franchises can load up on stingers, once the credits roll for his movie, you won't have to worry about leaving the theater because the movie's over. There is no mid-credits or post-credits scene. There you go. So if you wanted to know, now you know. If you want to read the rest of the article, of course... Head over to Collider and check that out. Last but not least in the Star Wars news front, um, from thehollywoodreporter.com, by way of Ryan Parker, turns out Fox News con uh, contributor gets death threats after a Star Wars joke. Um, this uppity, dyed, blonde chick with stupid pretend glasses or something here, um, who clearly thinks more of herself than is probably necessary, said the following on Twitter. She said that she wasn't familiar. I'm sorry, let me quote here. Quote, yesterday I tweeted something and all I said was that I wasn't familiar with Star Wars because I've been too busy liking cool things and being attractive. People threatened my life, end quote. This is, uh, let's see here, Catherine Timpf. Never heard of her, but she was on Fox News' Red Eye Um a couple weeks ago and brought this up. Now, while I think this lady's a pretty clearly a moron, come on, people of the world, you can't sit there and then prove her fucking correct by sending death threats just because she's trying to be snarky and she thinks she's being cool. Ah, uh, so pathetically sad. Can I read two of her e uh, two of her Twitter posts from today? Sure, go ahead, go right on ahead. From at Cat Timph. Three hours ago. From when we're recording. I just made popcorn and popped every single kernel without burning any of them. So now I know I'm superhuman, yet still... 
don't feel fulfilled. Another tweet. My favorite part of Christmas is, I'm going to get to see so many of your babies with red bows on their heads. That's who we're dealing with here. It's not worth it. Yeah. She sounds like a re- she sounds like the brightest bulb in the box. That's for sure. Anyway, so that's all my little Star Wars news all packaged together there for you. And back to you, Tim. Next up for me, Quentin Tarantino news. Yeah, Hateful Eight's coming out in December, and I think uh, a lot of us cinephiles are super excited to see it, and especially in 70mm big-ass screen viewing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to go all the way to Austin to see it. <laughs> are you actually going to go drive out to go see it? Uh, yeah, I mean, unless they get something here in Houston. Yeah. Well, I, well, I guess seeing the wide format, yeah, you're definitely not going to be able to just go to your run-of-the-mill IMAX uh, for that. But yeah, no, it's good. At least Austin has it. From Birth Movies Death, Tarantino's next project might land on television. This is written by Scott Wampler. Since 2000, Quentin Tarantino's been talking up an adaption of Elmore Leonard's 40 Lashes Less One. At one point, he even claimed to have written 20 pages worth of the screenplay. And now, with Hateful Eight in the can and ready to hit theaters on Christmas, it appears the project may be back near the top of his to-do list. Speaking with Premiere Magazine, Tarantino had the following to say, Quote, It always takes me a while before thinking about the future. That said, I own the rights to this book. I've wanted to adapt for a while. And the time may have come for me to tackle it. This is 40 Lashes Less One, written by Elmore Leonard, which could be my third Western. I'm considering taking the project to TV in the form of a miniseries of four or six hours. In Tarantino's quote there. Uh, And as a side note, Elmore Leonard also wrote, uh, wrote the book Rum Punch, which served as the basis for Tarantino's third feature length film, Jackie Brown. Continuing the article here, actually no, I'll just stop there. Yeah, so I think that's pretty uh, pretty interesting. However, there are some skeptics out there and think that Tarantino might not actually go through with it because Tarantino is kind of uh, against the idea of his product being streamed on the internet. Because like what we've talked about many times before, he really likes people experiencing his film, especially the first time you watch his movies, on a on an actual screen, uh, on an actual TV, or, or, or a movie at a movie theater, for example. I mean, I think he's more so adamant about you watching his movies that way than he is with watching his mov- movies particularly or specifically on a 35mm film. So, Matt, what do you think? Do you think he might actually go into TV and put all of his reservations with streaming to the side? Because we all know that if you do a TV show or a miniseries, most people are probably going to be streaming it than actually watching it on, you know, on on whatever channel that it will premiere on. Uh, I'm going to say that I think he will ultimately do it, but probably after he stops making movies. Because he's always said that he is not going to make movies forever. And he wants to make sure that he goes out on a high note, not a low note. And I think that at a point when he feels like he's ready to say, okay, I'm done with movies. I think that's when he'll probably be 
most ready to maybe like executive produce, maybe direct like a pilot or something. Um, but then go into probably doing some kind of production for television. Because I think at that point it won't be as important. I think it will still be important, but I don't think it will be as important as it is now. Sure. And I'll save uh, my last piece for last. Okay. Well, then I'm going to tie directly into that with the following from hitfix.com by way of Drew McQueenie. What one bad screening of The Hateful Eight means for the future of film. Quentin Tarantino would have popped a blood vessel if he'd seen what we saw. Yes, there are a few things... This is, of course, from Drew McQueenie. There are a few things I've been looking forward to more this year than the release of Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Since the live reading he did of the script here in Los Angeles, I've been excited to see how he would hone the ending of the piece and how he and his longtime collaborator, Robert Richardson, would make this whole thing look. Tarantino's films are events for me, and I think a big part of this is because there's so much of my DNA as a film fan that was formed the same way as it was for him. Uh, let's see here. It goes on for quite a bit of... Uh, time here in the article where it touts um, where Tarantino's position is, where he stands with the idea of the history of film, where film's been falling out. also discusses uh, George Lucas, you know, bringing digital to the fore and how digital is, you know, kind of a big thing. Uh, Let's see here. And then we get, we get to the actual issue. So instead of the triumphant demonstration they were hoping for, the presentation of the crest was a serious disaster. This is from uh, this was done at the Crest Theater in L.A. It was a press screening. I'm not sure why anyone would stage a screening as significant as this one and not do a tech run through first, but it happened. There's no way any competent projectionist would have seen what we saw tonight and gone ahead with the screening. There are many reasons tonight could have gone wrong, not least of which is because the projectionist's union that was at full strength when I moved to L.A. is no longer in charge of things. One thing that happens when you have dedicated, well-paid, well-trained projectionists in every single booth is that you can expect things to be handled properly, and if there's a problem, you can expect that problem to get fixed fast. From the moment the film began with the overture card depicting a horse-drawn carriage riding through the snow in front of a stylized mountain range, Ennio Morricone's uh, big lush score creeping in, there was a problem. The carriage was in the center of the screen, towards the lower third of the image, and right there, almost framing the carriage, was a soft focus spot that kept dilating in and out of focus. The film played for two hours until the intermission, and nothing changed. For the entire thing, that maddening focus issue continued. When the lights came up, I heard several people talking about it, puzzled why no one seemed to be doing anything about it. Eventually, someone announced that they would be showing the second half of the film via digital projection because the 70mm was no longer working. How embarrassing is that? And the article still continues on from there. 
going into, of course, the horror that was this happening. And, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that one bad showing is the end of everything and what have you. But holy crap, people. It is important when you are trying to make such a big statement about film, you have got to get it right because when you don't, and it's this potential, this scenario has the potential to be much, much worse when it actually goes to places like Austin and other, and, uh, and the other spots around the country that it's happening. Because, I mean, because if it happens and it's worse, you are literally going to sit there and throw away the case for saying that film is an experience that is somehow superior than what can be had digitally. Now, I'm not trying to say that it is an either-or proposition. As I've always maintained, and I know Tim agrees, there is always going to be a place for film. There is always going to be a place for digital. Um, You know, there's going to be that give and take there. But... Man, if you're going to do it and you're going to make this big of a deal about it, you really got to get it right. Um, and, and this piece actually came out on the 3rd. So, I mean, this is very, very recent. This was four days ago. So, Tim, what do you think? Um, is Does this bode well or ill? Well, I mean... The rest of the roadshow experience? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so because... For a lot of us, you know, like kind of like what you you said earlier. I mean, you're still going to travel to Austin to go see it. So a lot of people will still go see the roadshow version of this movie, or uh, some, you know, thirty-five, seventy-five millimeter version of this film at the movie theater. But the problem with switching, going back to film projection, is that the theaters have to hire people, have to hire a competent film projectionist to run everything because I went to the Bruin Theater also in Westwood an older theater to go see Interstellar when Interstellar was released in 70 millimeter you know last year or whenever the hell it came out and one of my big complaints was that the picture was god awful and in my review for the movie I think I said something that I I actually preferred to have seen it in digital because it would have looked better. The colors would have looked more crisp and clear. And uh, I mean, there just would have been color period and not like this sepia toned <laughs> looking, you know, looking movie. And so that's going to be a big challenge. If, if Tarantino and Christopher Nolan and all these other directors are wanting to go back to film, theaters have to compensate for that by hiring legitimate projectionists or people who are competent to actually run a projector so yeah i mean that's pretty much how i feel about it right on okay well um i think in the interest of time i'm going to hold i'm just going to end my news there so if you want to add anything else then i guess let's do it (laughs) i'm going to wrap this news up with burt reynolds news i'll i'll keep uh michael jackson for uh, for next week, I guess. I'll keep him in the closet till then. So, Burt Reynolds, one of the best movies in Burt Reynolds' later career, you know, I guess the early to mid-90s Burt Reynolds movies, was, uh, was Boogie Nights. And I always thought, at least how he seemed like in the movie, <laughs> I always thought that he was having fun because uh, his character was just fun and Burt Reynolds was just really, really good in this movie. Well, apparently, 
He did not have fun whatsoever. Burt Reynolds says that he will never work with Paul Thomas Anderson again. This is from GQ.com. They did an interview with Burt Reynolds uh, as he was promoting a new book he just came out with. Uh, He just, yeah, he hated working with Paul Thomas Anderson. And I'm just going to read from a... Actually, no, I'm sorry. He wasn't speaking with GQ. He was talking to The Guardian to promote his new upcoming book. Reynolds said this, and I'm just going to read a few quotes here, or a couple quotes here. Quote, I'd done my picture with Paul Thomas Anderson. That was enough for me. End quote. Quote, I think mostly because he was young and full of himself. Every shot we did, it was like the first time that shot had ever been done. I remember the first shot we did in Boogie Nights where I drive the car to Grauman's Theater, after he said, Isn't that amazing? And I named five pictures that had the same kind of shot. It wasn't original, but if you have to steal, steal from the best. In all quotes. I wanted to mention this because it's kind of interesting, the the generational uh, kind of a gap with uh, movie actors and with experience. Uh, with working with directors and whatnot, because Burt Reynolds, he's been in the game, the movie business game, for quite some time. So he's worked with directors that a lot of younger filmmakers looked up to. So you have your Quentin Tarantino's and your Paul Thomas Anderson, who in the in the 90s, you know, they, uh, they kind of rejuvenated movie making, I think, by making original movies. And uh, they kind of channeled their nostalgic love for classic cinema into their own work, but at the same time, creating something that is their own and unique. It's it's just interesting hearing all these other older actors, uh, like Burt Reynolds, just commenting and seeing things in, in, you know, in such a different way than, say, you know, you, Matt, or myself. Uh, because I look to Boogie Nights. I think Boogie Nights is a great film, I can kind of see where Burt Reynolds is coming from in a way, but I don't hold that at all against Paul Thomas Anderson because, again, he created something. Yes, he might have, you know, he, he might have been paying homages to, you know, all these other directors by creating similar shots and whatnot, but again, he created something unique and his own. So, yeah, that is my news. Oh, well, I just want to tack on one little thing. Is Burt Reynolds not aware that his virtually his entire career resurgence at that point was due to Paul Thomas Anderson in that movie? No, it wasn't. It wasn't because of that movie. It was, you know, it was all because of striptease. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh, my bad. <laughs> my bad. All right. Well, that is going to end us uh, with the news and bring us to. Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim, Matt and Tim discuss the avclub.com article by Alexander Hughes called 15 Years Ago, Unbreakable Became the Superhero Movie We Need Now. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. Yes, alright, so again, 15 years ago, Unbreakable became the superhero movie we need now. It's from avclub.com and comes to us by way of Alexander Holes. Um, I'm going to read to you 
Let's see here. I'm going to read to you three paragraphs uh, that succinctly describe the movie in a way that really gets to the heart of the article. And then let us discuss. Unbreakable was something of an oddity in 2000. It was an origin story when non-comic readers were unfamiliar with them. It was a serious-minded, reality-based superhero movie when there were none. Not only that, but it was an unconventional hero narrative in which security guard David Dunn, Bruce Willis, is led to believe that he has powers by an osteogenesis imperfecta suffering comic devotee, Elijah Price, Samuel L. Jackson. It was a small-scale origin story, not about a hero needing to learn how to use new powers, but one that made a mystery, one unsolved until late in the movie, out of whether it's a hero out of whether its hero even had powers at all. What also distinguished Unbreakable was its greater emphasis on the human parts of its superhuman story. The mystery may drive the film, but in spirit it's closer to a character drama. David doesn't face supervillains or world-ending threats, but, but things more recognizable. The deep melancholy he wears like his trusty poncho, his growing estrangement from his wife, his inability to be the father his son needs him to be. Unbreakable blends the mythological with the personal. David doesn't just slowly discover his abilities, but himself. He seeks heroism not necessarily to provide salvation for others, but so he can have purpose again, so he can feel whole. Yes, Unbreakable is thrilling as a story about a self-possessed ordinary man discovering he is extraordinary, but it's most powerful as a story of a broken man looking to fix himself and his family to save not the world, but his world. In other words, Unbreakable is about something. It's never willing to sacrifice universal themes, relatable characters, and mature storytelling for superhero thrills. The same can't be said about superhero movies in 2015. Now, Dear God is... Is is Drew, I'm sorry, is Alexander correct? Holy crap. Thank you, Al. You the man. Um It's not that it's not that superheroes are inherently bad or superhero movies themselves are inherently bad, uh, in that the the need for escape and bur things bursting alive from comic book, but you can actually it is possible to tell a superhero story based in the world of comic books in terms of the actual real themes of comic books and then still have it relate to people on a personal level. And I think that is the understated brilliance of Unbreakable. And I think that's why his theory is, is that it's the superhero movie we need now. I think it's totally within the realm of possibility to choose to make a movie that simply talks about people who have real problems. And I think it's kind of interesting because to a lesser extent, what they're doing with the Defenders on Netflix kind of touches upon this because these are real people um, and because people, because the general audience public isn't familiar in any way shape or form with these characters it seems a little more natural but something like that that's nuanced enough for film is is where it needs to be and 
I, I mean, I know a lot of people were expecting another I see dead people, which is why I think people started looking at M. Night Shyamalan as a one-trick pony even back then. And then, of course, you know, as his career eventually kind of faltered to the point where we got the goddamn last airbender and after Earth and all that shit. Or whatever the fuck that Will Smith movie that he made was. Um, it's, the thing is, though, is that Unbreakable was genius. Even then, I loved that movie when it came out. I was so just awestruck with the way that it played out because it really did understand how people can truly relate to comics. It really can understand, it really was able to translate and get people to understand what goes into making a hero in that hero's life. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a brilliant piece. The piece is definitely longer than this, but I don't know. I mean, where, where do you, what, what do you think, Tim? I mean, does this guy have a point? Is this guy completely off base? Is there hope? Could we get another Unbreakable? Did you, did you like Unbreakable? <laughs> I, I, I did like Unbreakable. I remember seeing it when it first came out and I saw it, uh, I watched it again a few years later and then I rewatched it the other day. It was a different experience watching it now after watching all these other superhero movies that have come out since then. Because I, at the time, I didn't realize how much of a superhero movie Unbreakable actually was. I mean, there's not really a defining evil villain or anything like that. Because it's a very these are very human characters that do have backstories and actually have an origin story that is 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 more plausible and you can actually connect to it on an emotional level. And I also kind of think that we might not get another Unbreakable, especially in the Marvel universe, or even, I mean, I guess maybe the closest we'll ever get might be a DC Batman type of movie, because... Once The Sixth Sense came out, M. Night Shyamalan was, uh, you know, he was on a high of making one of, you know, a top grossing movie, an Academy Award nominated movie, and he was being praised as being the next, uh, as the next Hitchcock. And then Once Unbreakable came out, which is nothing like Sixth Sense. Yeah, there's a twist ending, but it's not as like, oh my god, you know, there's no shocks. The movie doesn't try to scare you whatsoever. And it's definitely a slower-paced, uh, slow-burning type of film. It's not story-based. It is theme-based, and it is character-based. People bashed Unbreakable because it wasn't another Sixth Sense. And I think... This limited, this criticism limited M. Night Shyamalan's, uh, you know, limited him in a great way. So he wasn't able to go on to make more movies like this. A lot, I'm sure a lot of people who had these ideas of making something that was kind of off the beaten path of, you know, like, oh, hey, let's make a, let's make a, let's make an X-Men movie. Oh, well, let's just get rid of all these big action sequences. We don't need, we shouldn't have a bridge being pulled apart, the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge being ripped apart. Let's, let's have something more low key, you know, which actually is kind of thinking about, it's kind of like what uh, the movie Wolverine was trying to be, something not as crazy and bombastic but something a little bit more low-key. But even with Wolverine, and even with 
uh, the Winter Soldier, both movies, as you're watching it, you know, there it has great pacing. It's more of like, like with Winter Soldier, more of like a political 70s political thriller. But even at the end of both movies, you had these overblown, crazy, chaotic action scenes. And it really contradicts what they were trying to go for or what they were trying to lead you into believe that they were trying to go for. But we will not have anything from this caliber of a director anytime soon. I really don't think so. It's going to take an indie director. It's going to take somebody with big cojones. It's going to take somebody creating something original. And that, I think, is an issue with trying to create a, a, a Marvel Avengers movie you know, uh, trying to style it or style it in such a lower key is because, well, people love the Avengers, and it already has a fan base. It already has its own footing. Each movie has to top the last movie, and it's just, you know, just gets more and more ridiculous and more and more stylized, serialized, and less and less unique. So, in that regard, no, I don't think we're really going to have an unbreakable version of a Marvel movie or any current property. But there are some interesting things about this article that I really liked. And I highlighted just a couple things here that I'll read. The result is that, and I'm quoting the article, the result is that surprise all originality and audience investment are slowly leaking out of superhero movies like Air from a tire that's still being driven on. These films are starting to matter only as world building and crossover exercises. Kind of like what I was, that kind of tags along with what I was talking about, that we're not getting unique films anymore. Iron Man was interesting and unique in its own way because that was the first movie in the whole effing canon. Now it's hard to really create something new and different and unique when it's very formulaic. And with superhero movies becoming increasingly ho-hum as they answer the question, where do we go next with bigger, one can't help but despair that the better answer will never be considered as smaller a sad sad thing and there i wrote you know as an example as captain america winter soldier is that you think they're gonna be small they're they're going for the smallish end of the scale but no it goes big by the end of the movie there's a big spectacle crappy you know same bullshit as any other avengers marvel movie and one thing that I want, and I'll I'll end with this. One thing that I would love to see in superhero movies, we got a we got glimpses of it in Ant Man, we got glimpses of it in the first Iron Man, we got glimpses of it in Captain America: Winter Soldier, is that we need more moments in superhero movies. I'm going to quote this again from the article. Some of the last moments of Unbreakable drive home a consequence and significance it achieves with very little. In the non-twist ending, the morning after David has saved the day, his own family is gathered in the kitchen for breakfast. David puts a newspaper article about the heroic feat in front of the sun. His son looks at it and then tears in his eyes looks up at his father in search of confirmation that he really is the anonymous hero on the cover. The hero he believes his father was all along. David, with a gentle smile, nods. That moment is everything. End quote. Great thing about Unbreakable, it has all these little moments peppered throughout it. Another one from the very beginning of the movie 
is another moment from the beginning of the movie is when uh, Bruce Willis is on the train before the catastrophe happens and he decides to flirt with the young woman you see what what kind of prompts him to start the flirtatious looks at her and in the in the flirtatious attempt at, of a conversation with her he gets a he gets a he gets a, a a look at her bare stomach as she's reaching up to put something away in the overhead storage bin or whatever. She's wearing a tight shirt and her shirt rises up a bit, and you see her bare stomach, and then you see a rose with thorn tattoo right on the side of her stomach, and it's something that a a girl from college would have gotten, you know, at that time, and you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands. And it's little moments like that with his camera work and. He doesn't shy away from taking his time. It's not only the filmmaker and movie studio's fault for not making more movies like this, but it's the consumer's fault as well. A lot of people, whenever they go and see a superhero movie, they don't want to see time taken. So that's what I think. There you go. Um, and I, I, I'm i glad that you did bring that um that part of the article up where they discussed the ending, because I remember watching that and I was just blown away. Like there were almost tears in my eyes just, I mean, because it's, there's like no words. It's just done. And I also like when David and his wife, you can see that you can see their fracture beginning to heal. And at this dinner, at the dinner conversations they have. Um, and I mean, it's it's just those human moments that are so important to to such a good story, and uh, they're just they're just not there. And I agree with you, Tim. Also, you know, like the, you, you're you're starting to see little spurts of it. You know, like like where you saw it in Ant Man and stuff. Um, but man, oh man, if we could just get a story like this, um, it. <laughs> I would be so happy. <laughs> but anyways, all right. Well, there you go. So again, Alexander Hall's avclub.com. Uh, 15 years ago, Unbreakable became the superhero movie we need now. Please check it out. Read that whole thing. It's an excellent read. And let us know. Do you agree with us? Disagree? What are your thoughts? Uh, send that email to the show at slscast.com. And thank you again for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. Next time, the bonus segment will be Copycat Throwdown and bringing back of A Christmas Carol from 1951, also known as Scrooge. But this time, we will be versing it against Scrooged from 1988. Thank you again for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. All right, and without further ado, it is time for... The Movie And this time, the movies are going to be 
curve. No, I can read. Hang on, not that. Not curve. Forget curve. The Good Dinosaur, The Night Before, and Ricky and the Flash. Uh, where do you want to start, sir? How about Meryl Streep and that other 80s rocker? <laughs> Ricky and the Flash. <laughs> oh, okay, yes. Let's Let's start there. We should probably start with the worst movie. Uh, all right, so Ricky and the Flash, um, 2015 American dramedy film, uh, direct, directed by Jonathan Demme, written by Diablo Cody, and stars Meryl Streep, Kevin Kline, Mamie Gumar, Audrey McDonald, Sebastian Stan, Ben Platt, and Ritz Springfield. Um, all right, so Ricky is played by Meryl Streep, and she has spent her entire life trying to become famous as a rocker, and of course, she had to do that um, by ignoring her family, and now her what's left of her family is in crisis. She needs to come back and try and do some stuff, but of course, it's been their whole lives without their mom, and she's finding out just exactly how difficult it can be when you weren't there as a parent growing up. Um, all right. I, I, okay. I, I get that the movie is supposed to be somewhat heartfelt and it's supposed, and, and that it's trying to be somewhat, I guess, realistic to a degree. And yet at the same time, still be some kind of a movie. But for me, this movie simply f- falls apart on the fact that it's, it doesn't really have any kind of it doesn't really kind of have any true resolution to it like sometimes you get the like by after you you you've got this woman she's completely abandoned her family um she's coming back to try and help where she can but of course no one wants her help because she abandoned her family to go pursue her own dreams and while the crux of that is definitely, well, sure, if, if your mom walked out on you and then tried to show up later on, you know, a lot of people would probably be bitter about that, and, and to a large degree, rightfully so. But on the same token, if you're going to have a movie about that and you're going to let the conflict stand, then you have to let, then you actually have to have a real conflict resolution process not some wannabe formulaic thing where people run away and come back and we insert new characters just for shits and giggles uh no just let let the conflict play out organically the movie doesn't do that and then on top of that it it also by the time you have gone through this whole thing and you're watching the formula it the formula doesn't play out in its formulaic way so it's not quite a twist but then you're not really left with any kind of resolution as well even though you don't get the resolution you get that feeling that everything's gonna work out in the end you don't even really get that you're kind of left with this grudging feeling like well to paraphrase our friend in canada it's a fucking movie it's kind of what I. That's kind of how I, I felt. Now, a lot of the performances are good. Kevin Klein does a great job. Meryl Streep does a great job, and 
I, I don't mean to to put down the people's acting. I just the story just did not gel for me. And because of that, I can't really say that I liked it, but it was certainly better than okay. So I give this one 2.75. What do you got, Tim? Yeah, this is by, not by any means, a great movie. But I found myself enjoying it for what it was. Uh, This is a movie brought to you by Jonathan Demme. That's right, the Academy Award-winning director of The Silence of the Lambs. He also directed Beloved. (laughs) <laughs> in Philadelphia. So I think when you when you have that that caliber of director on hand, you would expect a, a better product. And really I thought that this movie was just a product of somebody else's imagination. Um I, I kind of think that you had John, Jonathan Demi's uh direction in which, you know, really the, the core characters, uh, which are Meryl Streep, um, Kevin Klein, and Meryl Streep's real-life daughter, Mamie Gummer. I think uh, Mamie is how you pronounce her name. Those three are really good in this movie. Everybody else, not so much. The writing, at least to me, didn't really fit Jonathan Demme's directing style. The movie is written by Diablo Cody. She did Young Adult. She wrote Young Adult. She wrote Jennifer's Body and uh, her breakout movie, Juno. And it just kind of felt run-of-the-mill for even her. You know, she's supposed to be this fresh, on-the-nose type of writer. And it just felt stale all around. The jokes really weren't that funny. The characters weren't really full or rich. There really aren't many layers to really any of the characters. I mean, the only layers that you find in this movie are the layers within the relationship. Um, And there aren't really even layers there to begin with. I mean, I mean, as in the relationship I'm talking about, not necessarily Kevin uh, or Meryl Streep's characters, Ricky's relationship with... Uh, Rick Springfield's character, or even there's not really much, uh, uh, not really any layers between uh, her character and Kevin Klein's character either, who Kevin Klein plays her ex-husband. But again, it's not a bound, it's not a horrible movie, and I found myself enjoying it. I mean, even with Meryl Streep in the lead, it does take a while for you to get used to her character. You don't really ever actually like her or cheer for her until uh, closely in the movie. There are a lot of questions I asked myself during this movie. Like, how did Ricky and her ex-husband, Kevin Klein originally get together? What attracted them to each other? Because they couldn't have been more polar opposites, you know, when they meet back up in the film. Like, very cliched opposites. Kevin Klein's character is really kind of uptight, rich guy, and Meryl Streep is... Very much like Charlize Theron's character in Young Adult, which is why I kind of think Diablo Cody writing it, I, I it, maybe she was kind of doing it for the money, I don't know, but it just didn't seem like fresh writing from her, you know, stuff, it's, it's stuff that you've already seen uh, from her canon of films. Um, but yeah, you just really don't get her relationship with Kevin Klein. Like, what attracted to what attracted them to each other twenty five years, you know, prior when they first met? Was he always uptight and pretentious, or was he more loose and relaxed? You just really don't get a sense of that whatsoever. 
Meryl Streep's performing at, at the bar scenes, all, all the songs in the movie, they just felt like Meryl Streep performing. There was no help from anybody else in the band. Even Rick Springfield. It was a super fake audience that were watching these performances as well and the bar atmosphere that they were trying to create during these performances just felt like something that they were trying to create and there was nothing authentic about it whatsoever. Uh, it, it very much felt like you were watching... Oh, damn. I, I forget her name, but she's the writer and director. Famous, well-known. I'm sure, Matt, right now you would be able to pull out her name right now. But she uh, did, like, Something's Gotta Give. Uh, and Because I Said So. And all these other um, uh, chick flick, feel-good movies starring Diane Keaton. And it kind of felt like that in a way. I mean, even though those type of movies have this have this type have 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 this own unique aura to them, and necessarily they would never have to create anything like a fake bar scene for Meryl Streep to sing in. It just didn't feel authentic to her character. And and honestly, it does mean a lot because you're supposed to care about her character and cheer in a way for her character and really feel for Meryl Streep's character because of the type of lifestyle that she lives in. It just feels fake and forced. And that's pretty much it. I did enjoy it for what it was. So Matt gave it 2.75. I do give it a 3. All right. Where do you want to go from here, sir? How about The Night Before? All right. The Night Before. Uh, 2015 American Christmas comedy film directed by Jonathan Levine. Written by uh, Jonathan Levine, Edmund Goldberg, Kyle Hunter, and Ariel Shafir. Movie stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Seth Rogen, and Anthony Mackie. Um, and basically follows three guys who are having a who have a Christmas tradition of getting together that that began after one of the guys lost their lost his family in a car crash. Um, the the guys are kind of getting together for what they feel is well at least two of the three parties feel is the last get together and they are definitely hoping to score tickets to like the ultimate Christmas party or whatever. And it turns out that this is the year that they actually do have this wonderful, amazing, magical Christmas ball or whatever the hell it's called. I don't even remember really the nutcracker ball and shenanigans ensue. You know, will will it be the last time they get together? Will the guys grow up? Will they grow together? Will they grow apart? Uh, how fun will it be as it happens? Blah, 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 blah. Um, this is a pretty good comedy overall. Uh, definitely, you know, shock value stuff that's funny. Definitely um, funny fish-out-of-water stuff, especially with uh, Isaac. Um, who's played by Seth Rogen, where you see he's transitioning into being a dad, and yet he's trying to fall back onto that, you know, last-ditch party effort thing, kind of like uh, Neighbors, I think it was, that he did. And you see a lot of... uh, you see a lot of interesting character growth and character dynamics for what it is, anyway, within the movie. But honestly... Uh, this will not be one of my perennial favorites going forward. I don't think I'll buy it. I don't think I'll have it. And I, 
Um, you know, if it's on at a holiday party in the future, then so be it. But I'm not mad that I watched it. Um, yeah, it, I, three stars. Three stars. It's a pretty simple flick, pretty funny, nothing meaty, nothing that you haven't really seen before. And um, that's pretty much all I got there on that one. Go ahead, man. What do you got? I laughed a couple times, <laughs> a few times uh, during this movie. I did. I, I, I won't. I can't say I didn't laugh. It's a pretty funny movie, but I, you know, my main issue is that, like, I saw this a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I think the the Friday the Friday it came out that morning, and I've forgotten all but one. Up, uh, oh, well, no, actually, I remember two of the jokes that I I, I thought were funny. Uh, but only a couple of those jokes were actually hearty belly laughs, and all the other ones were like, oh, that's that's funny. And they were only, oh, yeah, that's funny, because they weren't really executed fully. I mean, I'm all okay, and I'm all for shock value comedy, but it it's all like it, it it's like they can't really get past the idea phase of their writing. Like they have a good idea, but they just don't know how to execute it the right way. And that's kind of how I feel about this movie on, on the jokes front. Uh, I did think that the movie itself, the story was a novel idea that does have heart and interesting characters, but I do feel like those characters in the novel idea was wasted on raunchy shock comedy that rehashes much of what you've already seen in Rogan flicks. Uh, like a lot of talk about penises, for example, and getting high, for example, um, this movie, I, I'm trying to think of what my initial comment of this movie was when I, whenever I was talking about it with the people who I saw it with, uh, and, and in a way, and the movie does kind of, you know, evoke the Christmas spirit in its, in its own right. Like whenever you're on Christmas Eve, if you go to a bar and it's really super decked out with Christmas, uh, decor and whatnot, you kind of get that type of feeling not necessarily when you're going over to your grandmother's house and you have the christmas tree up and spending christmas with your family no 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 you don't you, you know it doesn't evoke that feeling whatsoever it's when you go to a bar on christmas eve and you're sitting down getting drunk or high and then you realize like shit shouldn't i be like maybe with family or or somewhere else but you're still kind of enjoying yourself but not necessarily to your full to, to the full extent. You know, there's a little bit of regret in there, in, in, in a way. And that's kind of how I felt while watching this movie. Yeah, it looks pretty. Yeah, there's some good ideas. Yeah, it does kind of invoke that, you know, Christmas uh, the Christmas spirit in, 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 in a couple ways. But it, it, it just ultimately, it ultimately felt like I was watching other people have their kind of fun, and I wasn't really included. And I think a lot of that is in part because... I don't really care for the, these type of comedies all too much. Um, I've said it before. I love the 40-year-old virgin. I love Pineapple Express. I just don't care about neighbors. And and I did love This Is The End. I definitely love This Is The End. But I didn't care for neighbors. And I just really don't care for this one all that much. I do like this one better than neighbors. Or more so than neighbors. Because it wasn't relying on shitty humor as much as neighbors did. Um, but again, it was a novel idea. Um, and they keep talking about this movie. If you ever watch the, the promos for it, they're like, oh, this is going to be the next holiday Christmas classic. 
No, it's not. I cannot see myself 10 years from now watching this movie again and having those same belly laughs or experiencing those same belly laughs as I did, you know, watching it the first time. Why? Because the thing with Christmas movies, the thing with like Scrooged even from the 80s, late 80s, is that those type of movies that you revisit don't firmly plant themselves in the time that they were created. And unfortunately, a lot of this shit, like a lot of Seth Rogen movies that he uh, that, that, that he makes, they firmly plant themselves in that time, in that era in which that they were made. So 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, it's not going to have that same replay val- uh, value whatsoever because of all this shit that they reference. Um, yes, This Is The End does have that sort of... Uh, yeah, they do that a little bit in This Is The End, but not to the extent, because it's an all-around better movie. The comedy is different. The comedy was well was was better thought out. Same thing with Pineapple Express. Pineapple Express will be as entertaining 10, 15, 20 years from now as well, because, well, I mean, the same reasons why the Cheech and Chong movies are still entertaining, you know, 25, 30, 30, uh, more than 25, 35 years later. So, yeah, uh, I liked it less than Pineapple Express, but more so than Neighbors. I give this one two and a half out of five. Right on, right on. Okay, well then that's going to leave us with The Good Dinosaur, 2015 3D computer animated adventure comedy drama film. That's a mouthful. Uh, And of course, it's from Pixar Animation uh, and Disney. Uh, It was directed by Peter Sohn, and it stars Raymond Ochoa, Jack Bright, Sam Elliott, Anna Paquin, A.J. Buckley, Jeffrey Wright, Francis McDormand, and Steve Zahn. Um, All right, so... What if the, you know, the idea here is, is what, what if the asteroid that is believed to have caused the mass extinction event for the dinosaurs missed the Earth? What would have happened? Well, apparently you would get uh, a patasaurus farming, because that makes sense. Whatever. Uh, so we have this family of apatosaurus farmers who have some kids, uh, Two of the kids are regular old apatosaurs, and then we have the runt, who is Arlo. And this is our protagonist of the story. Uh, through a series of misadventures, it turns out that he's kind of afraid of everything, and yet his family still loves him, and his dad really wants to help him make his mark. Because the family, that's kind of their, that's kind of their thing. That's their shtick is when they've done something that really is important for the family, they get to make their mark. And it also, of course, translates to, you know, making your mark in life and all that good stuff. Well, poor Arlo just can't seem to get his shit together. Dad tries to help him. And then in a... And even though he still can't seem to get his shit together, and we then get a reverse Bambi moment. And now little Arlo uh, finds himself, uh, after another small series of misadventures, wrapped around this critter. And the critter is, of course, this little cave boy. 
he finds himself now having to get, work his way back to the farm and help save the farm before the first snow falls so they'll have food for the winter and blah, 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 blah. and of course from here shenanigans ensue what will happen with arlo what will happen with the cave boy how will they survive will they hate each other blah 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 all right so the thing with this movie is that it is probably Depending on your viewpoint and what you like out of art and what you like out of cinematography, at least with computer animation, I would have to say arguably Pixar's most beautiful film. This is arguably Pixar's most beautiful film. And there are certain characteristics that they put into some of the dinosaurs that you see that are very reminiscent of the actual eras and characters that that you would see in its live action counterpart that really helps to evoke those feelings from the viewer and a case in point would be um some t-rexes that are are basically cattle uh rustlers Right, they they they're you know they got to drive their cattle for whatever reason, but that's what they do. And they have this one particular scene where they're chasing after the cattle, but the way that the tyrannosaurs run, it literally looks like cowboys and cowgirls on horseback, and it's just a very very well done scene. And so you get those kinds of things that happen uh, sprinkled throughout the film that just add to the visual beauty. That is the good dinosaur. I think, depending on, again, your viewpoint, you might find that Wally was probably more beautiful, but man, I, I would, as much as I love Wally, I would still say visually that I think good dinosaur edges it out. But that's pretty much where my praise for this movie stops. The story that this film tells is very very simple and i think that they were really and truly trying to actually reach out and make a just straight up simple story for children not for the adults this time not with the laced humor and not with the obvious product placement that could be you know made into merchandise and stuff going forward um, there, of course, will be, right? It's cute, plushy dinosaurs. But that's not kind of the heart and the soul behind all this. And while I certainly applaud them for that, I actually went with my daughter, who's about to be four years old, in just a few weeks. Uh, she enjoys everything Pixar. She loves these movies. She fell asleep. We went to a ten fifteen showing. She had got plenty of sleep last night. She fell asleep in the last minutes of the movie. That should tell you how slow this movie is. It's punctuated by points of excitement. It's punctuated by points of entertainment. But the film just crawls. It's a good crawl for the adults who love to look at things that are pretty. Because, oh my god, this movie is gorgeous. But it's just too damn long the story it tells is too simple to be used in the narrative device 
also by the end of the movie when you come to the finale they needed to actually add something that would have brought all of these experiences that arlo has had to a place where he can demonstrate it not because he needs to prove anything to to the viewer or to himself but because the whole point was to be able to know that you've made your mark and be able to show that you've made your mark and yet for the whole reason that he comes back and everything he needs to do he never does make his mark for his family and yet it's it just treats it like a given so I can't say any more than that without just completely shattering the ending for you if you haven't seen it. So I'm going to have to stop there with that. But I will say that the movie is damn near 50 minutes too long. And the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. So contrasting those two things, I'm going to come in at 3.25 I liked it's a little better than liked but really just because it's so pretty bring us home Tim I, I really don't have much to add to that review but this is a 2.25 star movie for me easily one of the my least favorite Disney Pixar movies uh, yeah let alone least favorite Disney movies maybe Beautiful shot, beautifully shot film. Yeah, I mean, lush and beautiful scenery. Took me a little while to really accept the look of the dinosaurs themselves. Uh, however, the big strike against this movie is that it rehashes the same plot devices that you've seen in The Lion King and Finding Nemo. Not gonna, I don't want to spoil anything, so I won't really link it to The Lion King. Uh, but with Finding Nemo, when the good dinosaur does meet the 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 little cave boy or the you know, whatever I don't remember his name, it's kind of like Dory. He's kind of like Dory from Finding Nemo, you know. And it it just rehashes a lot of the same plot devices. And it's not they're not even trying to hide it at all. It's so damn blatant that it just gets annoying. But the movie is still beautifully shot, and it does have lush and beautiful scenery. It's not funny when they attempt to be funny. There's really nothing smart about the film. Uh, it's cliched and simple storytelling, simple jokes, and simple ripping off other dinosaur, or not other dinosaur, but other Disney flicks. Uh, if you want to see a better dinosaur Disney movie, just watch Disney's Dinosaur, which came out in... Shit, what was it? Nine, uh, 98, 99, 2000, around that time? Uh, something like that. It was it maybe 97, 98? I, I, late Oof. 90s, early 2000s for sure. Yeah. I mean, significantly better because it was storytelling. And it was kind of, in a way, the same movie. So we're getting to the point, kind of like with Marvel movies where... I mean, we've already surpassed the point where Disney Pixar is just kind of ripping itself off but again it's beautifully shot and lush and beautiful scenery is there 2.25 out of 5 and that's my review for the good dinosaur 
There you go. Oh, and since we were just talking about it, I looked it up. Uh, Dinosaur came out in 2000. Oh, okay. There you go. (laughs) All right. Well, next week's movies uh, are going to be Krampus, Creed, and In the Heart of the Sea. Look at that. We've actually managed to get a few Christmas movies in here this month. Yay! Um, All right, so... Those are going to be the movies for next week, and I do believe that is going to bring us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music for our discussion segment was definitely brought to us by newsopen.org, so thanks to them for allowing us to have that open source music. All the rest of the music that you're familiar with has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both. Slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can also send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Sam Elliott, I get to say this. I think any time you can affect people in general in a positive way, then you're a lucky individual. I should unmute my microphone. Take your cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>